On today's episode, we have some awesome 80s dance movies, starting with Dirty Dancing from 1987 and Footloose from 1984. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we've got some slick 80s dance flicks and i just absolutely love them i mean i i do want to talk about something really quick before we get into the movies and it's basically just going to be a bitch session because i fucking hate it but Outdoor maintenance. Year-round, I absolutely fucking hate it. It's my least favorite thing in the world. My yard's design is, it's on a corner lot, and there's basically just a bunch of very small, weird sections to it, and you can't really get anything going when you're mowing. If you start going in one direction, you've got to change to another before too long at all, and it's just, it's very aggravating because you, you want to be able to continuously mow, and it ends up feeling a lot like it's not going as quickly, basically. And then in the fall, you know, we have leaf cleanup, and I live in town, and so you have to clean your leaves up and put them by the curb. You have to make sure that they're on the curb, not in the street, even though nobody follows that fucking rule at all. And you have to put summer stuff away in the fall also, like lawn furniture and things like that. And usually I'll put my mower away, and... It's just, it's not my favorite thing because same thing with the way my lawn is designed. I basically have to just blow all of my leaves, if, especially in what, what would be my backyard, basically. I have to blow the leaves into a pile and then rake them onto a tarp and do that several times over and then drag them to the curb and leave them there. And it's it's not my idea of a good time. I know I'm probably bitching too much about it, but whatever. So, you know, then in the winter, obviously, you know, there's snow cleanup and that's awful. I mean, it's hardest with the winter because you don't really know when you're going to get snow regularly. So you don't know if you're going to come home from work one day and you're just going to be cleaning up 12 inches of snow or something. And luckily, I have a snowblower, and it's a pretty decent one, but there's still shoveling to be done, and it's still just awful to deal with. And then, of course, you know, in the spring, you get ready to start up mowing again, and you have to clean up a little bit of the lawn and things like that, and change the oil in the mower, and it's basically just it's never ending. You just are always doing something. I would say spring is probably the best time, like the time after the snow falls and before you have to start mowing is probably for the best. I mean, that's the best time, but I don't know. I mean, it just fucking sucks. I don't really care for it at all. So yeah, I just wanted to use this platform to complain about that for a little bit. I hope you enjoyed it. All right. So I promise we're going to get right into the movies right now, starting with Dirty Dancing, released on August 21st, 1987, directed by Emil Ardolino. E-M-I-L-E, is that Emil? I think so. He made Sister Act, which is not a movie I've ever seen. 
I'm sure it's an all-time great, but I'm just really not that interested in seeing it anytime soon. It doesn't really appeal to me, but it could be a good movie. I just haven't given it a shot yet. So for the writer, we have Eleanor Bergstein, and she said that a lot of this movie was actually based on things that really happened in her life. And so, I mean, I'm sure a lot of writers can say that, but, you know, she made it sound like it was pretty well on track with what she had done in her life. For the producer, we have Linda Gottlieb. And then for the score, we have composers John Morris, Eric Bulling, and John Barnes. And I want to make it clear, this movie is not about incidental scoring and instrumentation. This is about great music, pop songs, things like that from the 60s and earlier. And I mean, and it's got a few original songs too. It's very good. So I mean, I'm just going to go through the list. I'm sorry if I'm just reading it off ad nauseum and not really saying much about them, but I really want to share because this is one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. I absolutely love it. First off, we have Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Big Girls Don't Cry by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Do You Love Me by The Contours. Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Hey Baby by Bruce Chanel. Some Kind of Wonderful by The Drifters. These Arms of Mine by Otis Redding. Cry to Me by Solomon Burke. Will You Love Me Tomorrow by The Shirelles. She's Like the Wind by Patrick Swayze, which was obviously an original for this movie. And then... Another original for this movie was I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. And that's kind of like the signature song of this movie. It's awesome. It's a really cool song. I really like it. So for the cast, we have Patrick Swayze, who plays Johnny Castle. And he was in The Outsiders, which was just an okay movie, but it has some of the biggest names of up-and-coming stars in it. I mean, just people... It's like you can't even believe when you go through the cast list how many different people there are that you've heard of and are household names now. Then he was in Red Dawn, which I would say absolutely check out Red Dawn. I know I've recommended it before, but it's such a good movie. It's it's so cool what it's about, about Russia invading U.S. soil and basically these kids leading an uprising to try and defeat them and all this stuff. I mean, it's very awesome. Then we have Roadhouse, which is a movie that is a so-bad-it's-good kind of movie. It's kind of ridiculous and over-the-top, but it's very enjoyable to watch, in my opinion. He's Patrick Swayze's good in it. It's just, it's kind of a silly concept. I mean, it's about, like, bouncers at nightclubs and stuff, and it's just a little out there. He was also in a movie called Point Break, and that had Keanu Reeves in it, and that's a solid one. It's actually kind of funny. It has basically a lot of the same plot beats as The Fast and the Furious, if you look at it. It's been pointed out before, but I just wanted to mention it. There's an undercover cop, and he's infiltrating this gang of criminals who are robbing these things, and basically he he has to make a decision whether or not, because he ends up really liking the people that he's investigating and things like that. So, I mean, it's it's pretty solid all around. And then last but not least for Patrick Swayze, I would say Donnie Darko is a great one. It's not for everyone, I'll say that right now, but it is a solid movie. I really enjoy Patrick Swayze's character. He's kind of one of these motivational speaker types. I can't remember exactly what he does, but basically... Donnie ends up telling him off in this movie, and it's just, it's fucking great. I mean, Patrick Swayze plays it so well. It's so 
awesome. Then we have Jennifer Grey, who plays Frances Baby Houseman, and I'll be referring to her as Baby for the duration of this episode. She was in Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze as well. She was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, previously covered on this podcast, and I can't recommend that one enough. It's a really enjoyable movie. It's got a lot of fun elements, a lot of serious, dramatic elements to it as well. And then I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that Jennifer Grey, sometime I think in the early 90s but I'm not exactly sure when she got plastic surgery and this I don't believe was her intention but basically they botched it pretty bad and she doesn't look it's not like she looks monstrous or something now it's just that she doesn't look like the Jennifer Grey we know from these movies that Jennifer Grey was known for being in and it's not ideal. I mean, it's it's one of those cautionary tales about the dangers of trying to improve yourself that way. And sometimes what you see as flaws in yourself are not truly flaws. A lot of people probably look at them and they think, well, that's what makes you you. And I think it's a good quality. So next up, we have Cynthia Rhodes, who I have noted here is hot. And she plays Penny Johnson. And she was in Flashdance, which I've never seen... I'm kind of tempted to, I'd almost like to see it, but I don't really know for sure if it's actually worth my time, so I'm kind of apprehensive about it. She was in Staying Alive, the sequel to the film Saturday Night Fever, and it also stars John Travolta, and it is terrible, and it's got, it was directed by Sylvester Stallone, and it has a bunch of Frank Stallone songs in it, if I recall correctly, and it is just ridiculous. I mean, it is not a good movie. Then we have Jerry Orbach, who plays Dr. Jake Hausman, who is Baby's dad, and he was the voice of Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast from 1991, the animated one, and he was also Lenny Briscoe on the show Law and Order for several years. I want to say over a decade, but I'm not absolutely positive on that. But I mean, he passed away several years ago now, and he was just such a great actor, and he never got enough roles, I don't feel like. Then we have Jane Brucker, who plays Lisa Houseman, and Kelly Bishop, who plays Marjorie Houseman. And she's important to note that she's actually the mom slash grandma on Gilmore Girls, and that's a great show. I mean, it's a little girl-centric, but it's enjoyable for guys, too. I, I honestly find a lot of the humor really funny in that show, and it's it's very watchable. So, I mean, if you ever see it on, you know, maybe give it a chance. So for casting notes, we have Winona Ryder and Sarah Jessica Parker were considered for the role of Baby. Billy Zane, Val Kilmer, and Benicio Del Toro were considered for the role of Johnny. Patrick Swayze supposedly had to convince Jennifer Grey to be in this movie because she disliked him so much during the filming of Red Dawn. For the plot synopsis, we have, while away with her family at a summer resort in 1963, a teenage girl falls for a dancing instructor from a different background than her. Alright, so, diving right into this plot, guys. I'm fucking excited. I do love this one. So, I absolutely, as I mentioned, I adore the soundtrack so fucking much. I wanted to lead right off with that because it's very important and I feel like I don't... I'll mention it throughout, but I don't want to let that be forgotten that I love this soundtrack. 
So we get this grainy slow-mo black and white opening credit sequence and people are dancing dirtily, of course. And some of this dancing is a little underwhelming, honestly, compared to the rest of the movie. But, you know, obviously when you first watch it, you're just like, oh, okay, they're really grinding on each other. All right. We see the Houseman family is driving to a resort and listening to music on the radio and... I couldn't remember for sure at first, but this whole thing with baby narrating does get dropped after the beginning, thank God, because it's like, it's not necessary in this movie. We don't need her to explain everything that's going on. It's pretty clear. It's It does a good job telling its own story without someone helping. Anyway, baby is played by Jennifer Grey, and her sister is Lisa, her mother is Marjorie, her dad is Jake, who is a doctor, and he's played notably by the late, great Jerry Orbach. By the way, if you want to hear one of my favorite comedy bits ever, just look up John Mulaney's stand-up bit about Law and & Order and Jerry Orbach's eyes, and you will not be disappointed. I absolutely love it. Baby establishes that our story is set in 1963, before Kennedy was shot and a bunch of other 60s shit was happening. Baby's into a bunch of Peace Corps-type causes, and she really just wants to change the world. And Baby's sister is the absolute most insufferable person, but we'll get into that in a little bit. The upper-middle-class white people dance lessons Baby goes to when she gets settled at the resort are exactly what you would expect them to be, pretty much. This woman who plays one of the dance instructors, Penny, who is played by Cynthia Rhodes, is actually just out-of-this-world attractive in this. Not even by 80s standards, but just like any standards whatsoever. Baby goes out to look around and she sees the man that runs the resort, Max, is like pep-talking the waiters, but he can't see her. And I'm assuming if he could see her, he would probably stop saying what he's about to say. He's basically laying the groundwork for what a piece of shit he is and what the waiter's jobs are, which is to also be pieces of shit, as you'll find out. He tells them to stay in line and show the rich daughters a good time, even if they're total uggos. Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, walks through and makes a snide remark, and Max stops him. Johnny is cool, which is evidenced by his choice to wear sunglasses inside. I mean, I've been there, bro. I I used to do that all the time, but it wasn't probably for the reason you're doing it. Max tells Johnny to stick to teaching only the kind of dance lessons that he's supposed to. The next day, the housemans are eating, and there's some talk about Baby and her save-the-world horse shit. Baby mockingly points out that Lisa's getting into decorating, and she obviously doesn't think that's like a dignified career or something. Then we get introduced to Max's dipshit grandson, Neil. And Neil and Baby are at a dance sometime later, and it is further established that we should definitely not like Neil, and he just exudes this douche lord energy. I swear to God, it's terrible. I love the contrast of this vanilla-ass high-class dancing that we see first with all the snobs versus what we get later with people that might as well be literally fucking each other on the dance floor. It's fucking great. So Penny and Johnny come and make a show of their dancing, and they put everyone to shame at this stupid upper-class thing. And Max looks on disapprovingly as they dance and tells them to stop, so they do, but it's like... Fuck your fucking life, Max. I mean, let them do their thing, you know? It's, that's that's not cool. I should mention that Wayne Knight is in this movie, and it's one of his first roles, so it's a very small part, but he's definitely in it. 
So Baby goes out walking and hears some music and gets told by this guy named Billy that she met earlier that she needs to go away because there are no guests allowed up where she's heading, which is where the sexy music is coming from. Baby does a little insisting that she go with him to see what all the fuss is about. He gives in and lets her carry a watermelon and says that she can see the dancers on the condition that she keeps the secret about what she sees there. She walks in with Billy, who is carrying two giant fucking watermelons, and a question comes to my mind. All of these fucking people are really fucking grinding on each other. Why aren't these people who are dancing just going off and fucking somewhere in private? They could put music on too. There's no reason they couldn't do that. All of that shit. A lot of this dancing is pretty unimpressive to me by some, but... Baby is acting fucking blown away by it. She just can't believe how they're dancing. And we get a glimpse of Penny and Johnny dancing, and they're clearly the best in the room. Baby finds out from Billy that he's Johnny's cousin, and that Penny and Johnny are not romantically involved, despite the way it looks by the way they're dancing on each other. But to be fair, they should be together. There's a lot of beautiful child production potential there. I mean, you gotta do your part for the community. Johnny comes over and basically asks what the fuck Baby is doing there because he knows she doesn't belong, and Billy says that she's with him. Baby says, I carried a watermelon, which she immediately regrets after the fact. It's a nice little comic relief of her repeating, I carried a watermelon, back to herself, and she's just like disgusted by her own stupidity in the moment. She awkwardly tries to dance with Johnny for a bit, and then I guess it's the next day or something. Baby and Lisa are getting all done up, putting on wigs and shit for something at the resort. Baby walks over and talks to Penny about her background as a dancer, and Penny is very forthcoming with the fact that her mom kicked her out at 16, and it sounds like she's had a pretty fucking rough life, but she just knew she was meant to be a dancer, and that's all she wanted to do. Baby, who is basically a fucking child who clearly has no concept of picking up on social cues actually tells Penny that she's envious of her after Penny says that. I mean, come on. Penny walks away without responding to her, which is probably a fair response. That night, we're at another dance, and Johnny's teaching an older woman how to dance, but she probably just wants to fuck him, let's be honest. Baby is hanging out with Neil again, and Neil is definitely under the impression that he's not a steaming sack of shit person. Baby is clearly trying to get away from him, but he can't see past his own egomaniacal nonsense to understand all of that. Neil thinks that he's going to show Baby the ropes of life while bragging about the hotels that he's going to inherit. Neil and Baby go into a kitchen to get food, and Baby sees Penny crying in a heap on the floor, and you just know that she must have done something other than, like, lose a contact or something. Neil is completely oblivious to this, as, you know, he really only cares about Neil, so he doesn't even notice what's going on. Baby says she's going to go check on Lisa, who she saw storming away from a waiter named Robbie earlier, and she goes to get help for Penny from Johnny and Billy. And on their way back to Penny, it is revealed that Penny is preggers. Baby gets very presumptive about the nature of what the situation is and how it pertains to Johnny or how Johnny will handle it all, and Johnny is exceedingly annoyed with her, rightfully so. So Penny needs to get an abortion, but she doesn't know how she's going to manage that or afford it. Baby suggests that there must be some way, because for people like Baby, there's always money available, and they don't really know any different from that. Penny basically tells Baby that she doesn't really know shit about her problems, and to kindly fuck off immediately. 
apparently. Baby finds out who it is that knocked her up. The same guy, Robbie, who was with Baby's sister, Lisa, earlier, who knows all about the pregnancy and is actively not even chipping in to abort or even acknowledging it because he's such a piece of shit. Baby wants to help, but Penny basically doesn't want Baby's rich girl help and tells her no. Baby confronts Robbie the next day, and Robbie doesn't really see anything wrong with his actions. He essentially just says that some people matter and some people don't, even though I guess some of the people that don't matter are people that he's willing to fuck. It's like, what a class act. And basically, my whole takeaway from any interaction with Robbie is like, eat shit, dude. Fuck yourself. I feel like I'm not supposed to like this guy, Robbie. I mean, I'm getting the feeling that maybe they're laying it on a little thick that I'm not supposed to be a fan of him. So, you know, it's coming through loud and clear. Basically, anyone who is a waiter is probably to be steered clear of in this movie. Robbie hands her a copy of The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, and now I'm just absolutely positive I shouldn't like him. So Baby goes to ask her dad, Jake, for the money for the abortion, but she won't tell him what it's for. He goes to make sure that it's not for anything illegal, but stops himself before getting confirmation conveniently. Basically, he trusts her, and he says that he'll get her the money, and we get a little stay by Maurice Williams in The Zodiacs, and it's so fucking great. It's such a classic song. Baby comes and gives Penny the money that she got from her dad, and Penny is initially thinking that the money is from Robbie, but Baby confirms that Robbie is indeed the bag of shit that Penny thought he was, and makes it clear that he did not contribute. Johnny correctly assumes Baby got the money from her dad, and Penny says that she can't take the money because she has to perform in a show on the day that they would have to do the abortion. They can't miss the show or they'll basically just lose out on big money, her and Johnny, so she's like freaking out because she can't miss it. So this basically sets into motion the chain of events that leads to the main plot of the movie where Billy suggests that Baby take Penny's place for the dance show. So here we go, it's fucking non-abortion plot time. Alright, Johnny begins teaching Baby the dance routine, and Johnny is very stern and demanding and also very impatient with Baby as he tries to teach her to do basic dances. Like, I'm sorry, you could be naturally good at dancing and not learn these dances in only a few days that well. But I gotta say, Jennifer Grey is not usually overly attractive, but when she's rocking this tight, dark pink tank top and short shorts while dancing on the steps... She looks incredible. She actually looks great a lot of times in the sequence. The song Hungry Eyes comes on, and I can feel the magic between you and I, Dirty Dancing. I absolutely fucking love it. Baby keeps fucking up a lot of times, and Johnny obviously gets frustrated with her. Penny and Baby are both virtually assless, though. I want that for the official record. They dance together, and it's like their back just goes directly to their legs with nothing in between. Baby is getting better, but Johnny is naturally frustrated with her inexperience, and so one night while it's raining, they decide to take a break because they've been busting their asses getting ready. Johnny has to break his car window because he locked his keys inside, and just like some kind of fucking badass he just kicks loose a post and uses that to break into his car they go out riding and she tells johnny that he's wild and laughs like a fucking weirdo and it's just such an awkward fucking moment i don't really understand why she tells him that but okay back to the training they go to this log that is laying across a stream and they do balancing lessons and i want to make sure i paint the picture properly 
the log is high above the stream. Like, it could be used as a bridge to get from one side of the stream to the other, and it would not be fun to fall off of. And it's not super big, so it's probably extra hard to balance on. So Johnny talks a bit about how he became a dance instructor, and Patrick Swayze doesn't get enough credit for his performance in this. It's top-notch, honestly. So they dance on this log to keep balance, and it's unclear if they can actually hear the music that's playing. I assume not, but I don't know for sure. They start practicing this signature move where Johnny lifts Baby up by her midsection and holds her above his head, and they initially start practicing on land in a field, and then they move to the water, and I guess the water would be easier because you don't have to worry about falling all the way down, you just land in the water. But anyway, Baby is with Penny later, and Baby is freaking out about remembering everything that she needs to do with a dance. Penny clears the air with Baby that, despite what the perception is, she doesn't actually sleep around and Penny reveals that she is scared about the abortion procedure and we see a little glimpse of baby and Johnny dancing at a show and baby is just sucking it up pretty fucking bad I'd like to learn to dance but Patrick Swayze is no longer with us so I guess I really can't do that I mean no one else could teach me like he could and I really don't want to undersell how bad baby dances at this show she forgets everything she's learned and it's just like she looks lost out there it's not good so she definitely doesn't do the big lift which is important and then afterwards Johnny and baby are in the car and he doesn't give her too hard of a time about how she did and actually tells her that she did good despite what we actually saw which was kind of complete and utter trash if you ask me They come back to the resort, and Billy tells Johnny that Penny is in fucking rough shape after her back alley abortion that they thought was supposed to be more legit. They paint up a pretty ugly picture of how the procedure went down. Penny is in a lot of pain, and Baby runs to get her dad since he's a doctor. Jake comes in and takes charge of the situation. Johnny says that he takes full responsibility for Penny, and Jake is very judgy on his way out and doesn't say anything to Johnny at all. Jake tells Baby that she's not the person he thought she was and wants to know if that's where his money went, but I think he knows that it is most definitely where his fucking money went. He says he doesn't want to see her around those people anymore, and he walks away in anger and doesn't want to talk about it at all with her. Baby goes to see Johnny at his bunk, and Johnny is shirtless because he's Patrick Swayze and he can pull that kind of thing off. Baby tells Johnny that she's sorry about the way her dad treated him specifically, and Johnny just basically says that the reason people treat him like nothing is because he is nothing. And naturally, Baby tells him that that's not true, and Baby still fundamentally doesn't really understand the differences in their life situations. She tells Johnny she's afraid of leaving and never feeling about anyone the way she does about him for the rest of her life. Then they commence dancing, which will undoubtedly lead to fucking, and I mean, it was bound to happen eventually. I read that everyone in this movie was playing a lot younger than they are in real life, but luckily they don't really harp on ages too much because I can buy them being young enough to play these roles. So at breakfast the next morning, there's a lot of awkward silence with the housemans. Jake and Baby aren't really speaking to each other, and then Jake announces that they are leaving sooner than expected and will miss the big show that they put on at the end. Then he gets a lot of vocal opposition from Lisa and Marjorie, and he backs down and they decide to stay. 
Baby goes to check on Penny and Johnny comes. Penny found out that she can still have children, which is a relief to her. Baby leaves and Penny gives Johnny a hard time about getting involved with Baby, since he's always saying not to do what he's doing, but Johnny acts like he's got it under control and no worries. Johnny leaves and Baby is still outside and they talk for a bit and it seems like things are okay. Later on, Baby leaves her family in the middle of the thunderstorm to go bang Johnny, which is so romantic, honestly. Baby asks Johnny if he's been with many women, which is, by the way, a great fucking thing to ask someone after you've fucked them a couple of times. He doesn't really seem to want to talk about it, which is also a great sign. Johnny goes off about how tough the situation for him is. He's from the streets, he says, and he comes there and women are throwing themselves at him and it's just overwhelming. He assumed that the women were actually interested and cared for him, but he says that they were just using him. So that night, Lisa tells Baby that she wants to go all the way with Robbie, which is uptight idiot talk for fucking. Baby tries to talk her out of it, but Lisa says that she knows Baby doesn't really give a fuck about what she does. Lisa goes on to point out that all Baby really cares about now is that she's not Daddy's little girl anymore. And oh shit, there is such a fucking great scene right here. So Johnny and Baby are practicing dancing, and they start lip-syncing to the song that's playing, and it's pretty fucking great. The song is Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia, and basically what it is is it's a song where this guy and this girl are singing, and they're like trading the lines of a song and saying things back to one another, and it's pretty fucking cool. So fucking Neil comes and interrupts this awesome scene to talk about the dance number at the show. Johnny gets a little ahead of himself, thinking that Neil actually wants his input on what dance to do, but Neil really just wants him to do a different kind of vanilla dancing that he already has in mind. Neil basically tells Johnny that he can either make the requested changes, or he can just find someone else next year. Johnny is obviously super pissed about this, and he's he's very displeased. Neil makes a comment to Baby on how hard it is to talk to certain people on his way out, acting like basically Johnny is not a real person to him, and it's like, yeah, that's classic Neil. Baby asks why Johnny didn't stand up to him, and Johnny is still having to explain the politics involved with how he has to act around there. Then a little later, Baby has Johnny duck down when she's walking with him when she sees her dad and sister walking so that they won't see her and Johnny together. So naturally, Johnny just calls her out for being a hypocrite. He thinks that she has absolutely no fucking intention of ever telling her dad about them being together, and Baby doesn't even fucking deny that, which is pretty bad. Shortly thereafter, Baby finds Johnny at Penny's cabin and apologizes to him, and as they walk outside, Robbie sees them and makes some comment about slumming it with the help. Johnny jumps down and kicks the ever-loving shit out of Robbie, and justice is done, but I guess... At the end, Robbie was still breathing, so not full justice, but pretty close. I've been holding off on talking about this character, but Lisa Houseman, Baby's sister, is so hilariously bad in every way. She provides such great comic relief in this movie. She can't fucking sing. She can't fucking dance. 
Her personality is complete garbage, and she is played magnificently by Jane Brucker. This older woman that was getting lessons from Johnny earlier in the movie is honestly very attractive, and she comes and suggests to Johnny that it's their last night together, and she's got something planned for them. She calls him lover, and I'm reminded of the quote by Liz Lemon from 30 Rock, where she says the word lovers always bums her out unless it's between the words meat and pizza. The woman's husband offers Johnny some money to give his wife lessons while he's busy, and Johnny turns it down and he says he's all booked up. There is one misstep in this soundtrack, okay? So, it's this jarringly loud song called Yes by Mary Clayton, and I don't know where the what the song is, I've never heard it outside of this movie, and it just should have been replaced with any other song, because it's like you're seeing Lisa walking to go meet with Robbie, and they're playing this song as she's walking, and it doesn't fit the scene at all. The only song that I feel like would have been less fitting for this scene would have been like Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. I don't know. So the song plays while Lisa goes to Robbie's bunk because she wants tonight to be the night that she fucks him. And naturally she finds him with another woman, the mature one who propositioned Johnny. And I will point out that Lisa is pretty-ish, but her character basically cancels that out completely. As she's leaving Robbie's, the mature woman sees Baby with Johnny across the way, and you know shit's about to go down. At breakfast, Max, the club owner, talks to the housemans and Neil about an alleged theft that happened at the club. The woman who saw Baby and Johnny is looking to pin the theft on Johnny to get back at him. They talk about how they asked Johnny where he was when the theft happened, and he said that he was alone in his room reading. And only Baby can really corroborate his story and say that he didn't really do it. But she's still afraid to tell her dad what's going on with Johnny and her, so... Baby says that she knows he didn't do it, but Neil says to keep out of it because he's a condescending ass face. And Baby tells Jake that she knows Johnny didn't do it, but she won't say how she knows, and she just wants her dad to trust her, but Jake doesn't really go for it after the whole abortion dealie. Baby accuses an old couple of the theft, and Max and Jake tell her that she's way out of line. So Baby breaks down and tells Max and Jake she knows Johnny didn't do it because he was in his cabin with her when it supposedly happened. Baby comes to talk to her dad and says that she's sorry about lying, but she says that he lied to her too. She says that he told her that everyone was alike and deserved a fair break, but he apparently only meant for people like him and his social status. She says that he can't just keep giving her the silent treatment and that he has to love her unconditionally, basically. She says that she's sorry and she storms off crying. So Jerry Orbach says absolutely nothing in the scene, but his performance is amazing. Like, the dad emotion he conveys through silence and through his eyes, wow, it's fucking great. So Johnny comes to see Baby, who is sleeping in a cabin later, and Johnny says that they found the old couple and fingerprinted them, and found they had stolen whatever was stolen, but they still booted Johnny because of him being involved with Baby. Baby is frustrated, thinking she came clean for nothing, but Johnny says that she did an amazing thing for him, and that she should keep her mentality positive, you know? Johnny goes to see Jake, and Johnny wants to say his piece before he has to go, and Jake gets really fucking worked up over everything that Johnny says, and he just says Johnny doesn't really know shit about him, but it really does seem like Johnny kinda does know some things about him. Jake criticizes Johnny for what happened with Penny, assuming that Johnny did all of that, and can't believe that he moved on to Baby from there. Johnny feels like he's not gonna win, since Jake won't believe him, so he 
basically just walks away. And Jerry Orbach killed it in this scene too. It's fucking amazing. Then when Baby says goodbye to Johnny, we get Patrick Swayze's soothing She's Like the Wind playing, and it's so fucking great. And at the farewell show, Lisa actually looks pretty fucking decent in her little outfit, but her singing just cancels that right out. Jake leaves the table to go give Robbie a gift and wishes him good luck with med school. And then Robbie thanks Jake for helping with the Penny situation. And Jake is just taken aback. He's pretty fucking astounded to learn that Robbie was responsible for that. And he takes the gift back from him and walks away. And by the way, this song that the staff is singing for the farewell show is legitimately awful and has no redeeming qualities. Like, the lyrics, melody, and dances are all straight-up garbage, but it fits with their shitbag culture. Johnny shows up to the show and, of course, says, nobody puts baby in a corner to Jake like a pimp, and takes baby to the stage and interrupts the lovely song. And I don't really know why him saying nobody puts baby in a corner is significant. I don't think it's like a callback or anything. Maybe my sister can explain it to me. Yeah, I'll I'll ask her. So Johnny announces that he's still doing the final dance despite being told not to, and he gives a little speech about how great baby is. And then we get this spectacular fucking dance to the song I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. And it's a fucking intimate dance, and Johnny and Baby just seem to be really enjoying themselves. And this is the dance that I always perform flawlessly when the song comes on at weddings. So she does this lift and fucking kills it, and everyone is so excited. And we see Penny talking to Jake, and then the mature lady who tried to frame Johnny storms off. Jake comes and sort of apologizes to Johnny. He says that he knows that Johnny wasn't the one who got Penny into trouble, but all he says is, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong, and tells Baby that she looked great out there dancing. But really, if you're not saying the words, I'm sorry, then you're not actually apologizing at all. I don't give a shit if you think that you have your own little way of apologizing. Saying what Jake says is not an acceptable apology. Just remember that, please. Okay, so then we seem to have reverted back to some lame vanilla dancing before the end credits, and that's the end of the movie, so... Praise for this movie. Obviously, the soundtrack is amazing. The overall watchability of this movie is through the roof. I always enjoy it. When I put it on, I'm like glued into what is going on, and that's an ideal way to view a movie. The character development is pretty fucking great, and there are so many underrated performances in this movie. I feel like it gets kind of written off as a chick flick about dancing. So for criticism, I would just say the one song called Yes by Mary Clayton that feels way out of place in the scene where it's featured is my only real problem with this movie, but it's not a huge knock. Trivia, Patrick Swayze was offered $6 million to reprise Johnny for a sequel. Swayze wasn't a fan of sequels and turned it down. Director Emile Ardolino only wanted experienced dancers in the film to avoid the problems of using dance doubles, which occurred in Flashdance from 1983. Patrick Swayze wore a girdle to look thinner and younger in some scenes. The song I've Had the Time of My Life was voted number 86 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Songs. The film's soundtrack started an oldies music revival, and demand for the album caught RCA Records by surprise. According to Frank Previtt, 
Before a single had even been released, there were a million copies on back order. The Dirty Dancing album spent 18 weeks on the Billboard 200 album sales chart and went platinum 11 times, selling more than 32 million copies worldwide. It spawned a follow-up multi-platinum album in February of 1988 titled More Dirty Dancing. One little IMDb nugget, I love this one. So, the crew had to make up Cynthia Rhodes to look worse during the agony scene because she was too beautiful without makeup to look convincing. Like, yeah, okay, I mean, I'm sure they probably would have made up most people or most actresses in that situation, but, you know, I I love that you're just taking this opportunity to go above and beyond and call Cynthia Rhodes hot, and I mean, that's fair. So for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 100 minutes, a budget of 6 million, opening weekend 3.9 million, worldwide gross 64.6 million, IMDb rating 7.0, Rotten Tomato Critics score 71%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 90%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I love this fucking chick flick. It's my favorite. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Now let's move on to Footloose. Released on February 17th, 1984. Directed by Herbert Ross. And he made The Goodbye Girl, which I've never seen. I think that's got Dust. No, not Dustin Hoffman. Um, What's his name? Oh, my God. I can't fucking think of his name. Richard Dreyfus, that's the one. Okay, so I think it's got Richard Dreyfus and maybe Meryl Streep? I don't remember. Anyway, I never have checked that one out, but there's a great title song for that movie, and I really enjoy it. It's by David Gates, I think. He made Steel Magnolias, previously covered on this podcast, and and you know, I'm really trying to figure out how loosely I want to define connective tissue motherfucker, because I could say connective tissue motherfucker for anything that I've already covered, and it's not really connective tissue in my mind. So anyway, he did My Blue Heaven, which is a movie with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis, And I don't think it looks very good. Steve Martin, unfortunately, as much as I love him in his comedy, he has a lot more misses than than hits. I mean, he's a lot of his movies, I'm like, what is this? I don't really fucking want to watch this. And also, he did Boys on the Side, which is a favorite of my mom's that me and my sister talked about on the Steel Magnolias episode. For the writers, we have Dean Pitchford. And producers, Louis J. Ratchmill and Craig Zayden. For the score, we have music by Tom Snow, Jim Steinman, Kenny Loggins, and Dean Pitchford. Wow. I mean, I didn't even realize this, but Dean Pitchford was actually a writer on this movie, and he was credited with doing some of the music in some capacity. That's pretty cool. So anyway, for the cast, we have Kevin Bacon, who plays Ren McCormick, And I remember, okay, so I watched Tremors that he is the star of, and I really enjoyed that movie. It was kind of silly and over the top, but it was an enjoyable movie. He was also in Apollo 13, which is just one that you absolutely have to check out. I mean, I'm sorry if you watch that movie and you don't think it's a good movie, I don't understand you. And then I also need to revisit Sleepers and Mystic River by him because those ones... I remember them being good. They might have been a little slow, if I'm remembering right, but nothing I couldn't go back and watch again. Then we have Lori Singer, who plays Ariel Moore. She was in The Falcon and the Snowman, and that's a movie that I believe has Sean Penn and somebody else in it, and it's, uh, 
I want to say it's kind of about espionage and stuff like that. I don't know. Next up, we have Diane Weiss, who plays Vi Moore, and she was in The Lost Boys, which is not my kind of movie. I can't get into it. I don't like it, and it doesn't help that Joel Schumacher directed it, so anyway... She was in Edward Scissorhands, which is legitimately one of the dumber movies I've ever seen that I've heard people say that they love. It's so bad. I mean, just basically, this guy creates a person, like this inventor creates a person, and he just makes him have, as one of the logical steps in the progression of making him a real human, he puts giant scissor things on his hands, and it's like, why? Why are you doing this? So anyway, then she was also in Practical Magic, which is a decent one. I think uh, one of the the social media people that I follow is Lane Moore, who I absolutely adore, and she loves this movie, and I just, I don't have as big of a connection with it, so I can't quite get there. She was also in The Mule, which is a quintessential Clint Eastwood movie. It's pretty slow, but It's an enjoyable concept, and it's got a lot of intense scenes and stuff. It's just, the pacing is awful. So next up, we have John Lithgow, who plays Reverend Shaw Moore, and he was in Santa Claus the Movie, and I believe that was with Dudley Moore. I don't know. I remember watching it in school, and it was pretty fucking bad. He was in Terms of Endearment, which I still need to check out. It seems like it's probably a very sad movie, and I don't usually go all in on stuff like that very quickly. And obviously, you know, a big thing for him was he was in Third Rock from the Sun, and that was a TV show from the 90s and maybe early 2000s where, you know, it was all of these aliens that were, that looked like humans, and they were trying to figure out how to live life in this foreign world, basically. And it, it, it was amusing. I mean, it wasn't one of my favorite shows, but whatever. Then we have Chris Penn, who plays Willard Hewitt, and I know him best from Reservoir Dogs, and he is fucking great. I mean, he's passed on uh, several years ago now, but he's he was very good. He was also in True Romance, which I absolutely recommend checking out as well. Then we have Sarah Jessica Parker, who plays Rusty, and you probably know her from Sex in the City, the TV show and the movies, obviously not my cup of tea. I mean, if you know anything about me, not really something I'm going to watch. She was in Hocus Pocus 1 and 2, and I'll say Hocus Pocus 1 is overrated, but it's a decent movie, and I have not heard a good word at all about Hocus Pocus 2. And then, you know, she was in The Family Stone, which is one that I watch every Christmas, but I also don't really think it's that great of a movie. But I do want to say something right now, and I want to go on record, and I'm I'm just going to say... Sarah Jessica Parker gets a really bad rap. A lot of people claim that she's very unattractive. And I I would say she is not like upper echelon hottie status, but she is a good looking person, especially like when she's dialed up and looks young in Hocus Pocus, she looks phenomenal. Like she looks really good and I don't give a shit. Like, I'm sorry. I don't want to hear any opposition on this. That's just the way I feel. So, casting notes, Rob Lowe and Tom Cruise were both slated to take the lead role of Wren, but were ultimately unable to star. Lowe suffered an injury, and Cruise was busy working on all the right moves. John Travolta was offered the lead role, but he turned it down, and one can only assume that that's because he was trying to get away from fucking dance movies. Diane Weist and John Lithgow are only 9 and 12 years older, respectively, than Laurie Singer, who plays their daughter. 
For a plot synopsis, we have a city teenager moves to a small town where he and his friends challenge laws banning music and dance by uptight community leaders. There you go. Alright, let's dive right into this fucking plot. So to kick off this movie, we get a shot of a series of different feet dancing to the song Footloose by Kenny Loggins while the opening credits are happening. And there's this one shot of a woman who is in heels, and she's wobbling her feet side to side, and that just feels like a rolled ankle waiting to happen. So the first real scene is John Lithgow as Reverend Shaw Moore, and he's preaching about how terrible rock music is. Pretty much everyone in the town is at the sermon, and the kids are all kind of checked out and not listening to him since he probably goes off on this tangent a lot. We see Kevin Bacon as Ren McCormick there too, and he can't seem to believe what he's hearing about how bad song and dance are in the eyes of this preacher. Afterwards, Ren and his mother meet the Reverend's wife, Vi, played by Diane Weist, and his daughter, Ariel, played by Laurie Singer. Ariel goes to hang out with friends, and they remark on what a beautiful guy the new dude Ren is. So fucking dreamy. The girls all race some random dude on the open road as they shit-talk to each other, and Sarah Jessica Parker is in this as a friend of Ariel's, and... I, I just, I'm still stuck on the fact, because she's like a, a cute, you could tell that she was cute, like she was too young for me in this, but she was a very good looking person, and I, I just, I struggle, like I don't know where the fuck people are coming from when they say that she's not, like, that she's basically ugly. I don't, I don't understand it. Ariel hops from the car into the truck they're racing with and almost dies by getting hit with an 18-wheeler, and back with Ren, they're talking about banning books, and Ren says he really likes Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, and this exclamation goes over like a fart in church, but... I mean, I seem to remember liking Slaughterhouse-Five. I don't really remember anything about it, but I seem to remember liking it. But Ren is quite persistent in his feelings, despite the objections he gets from the older folks. Apparently, Ren and his mom moved there because they had family there or something. And the girls go to a diner where they chastise Ariel for her reckless behavior. And Ariel has this rebellious streak as the Reverend's daughter and starts listening to unapproved music on a portable radio. And everybody's dancing along and shit, and it's pretty great. And then the Reverend, of course, shows up and kills the music, and everyone just stares in silence, and it's just super awkward. And I guess the Reverend was just bringing his daughter some money that he thought that she needed, and he's clearly judging her heavily for what she was doing. As Ren goes to school, he's treated as a bit of an outcast, and he also insisted on wearing a tie, so he kind of brought that on himself. So he runs into a Willard Hewitt, played by Chris Penn, who initially gives him a hard time, but they seem to become friends after razzing each other. Ren sees Ariel in the hall, and she's kind of standoffish with him, and she's basically just trying to keep up her rep, I think. So Ren sits down at lunch with Willard and tells the laid-back country boy about the things he's seen where he's from. Willard seems captivated by discussing a girl Ren was with once, but Ren builds up this big fucking story about getting physical with this girl, and then Willard asks him if it really happened, and Ren is just like, no. And it's like, fuck you, man. Don't fucking make some shit like that up. People love those kinds of stories, and if they find out that they're untrue, you're just gonna get labeled a liar, dude. 
The girls come and break up the guy's little lunch date, and they say that they have homemade food that's way better than the shitty cafeteria food. And as Ren sits down with his new group of friends, he learns the startling fact that dancing is actually literally against the law in their small town, and he can't fucking believe it. Apparently, a bunch of kids got killed in a car wreck five to six years before, and they blamed the music and dancing, which seems totally fucking reasonable. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I could see blaming alcohol or drugs, maybe, but dancing and music? fuck off. Ren is now in the car listening to the radio with Willard and he gets pulled over and the cops have a real fucking attitude with him. They say he was playing his music too loud and when Ren tells his family the story about getting pulled over, they're all douchey and submissive enablers about the dumb fuck laws and they tell Ren to watch himself out there. We see Ariel at her quiet home where she apologizes to her dad about the music at the drive-in. He says he can't be there to watch her all the time and he's listening to some classical piece and Ariel asks him if that music is okay and he argues that it is uplifting and doesn't make people want to do bad things like rock music does. At school, in the parking lot, some guy Ariel is with gives Ren a hard time for existing, but that's high school for you, honestly. Ren goes and gets a job at this plant that distributes, like, flour and other poorly packaged products. I don't know what it is. Ariel comes while he's working and tells Ren the guy Chuck from the parking lot wants to see him. Ariel seems like a real crotch at the beginning of this fucking movie, to be honest. Like, she's with this Chuck guy, and she volunteers to tell Ren that Chuck wants to kick his ass or whatever. And it just... It's not a good look for her. So it turns out this big thing with Chuck is just a game of chicken with some tractors with front end loaders on them. Because that's the measure of a man's worth in a small town. But I mean, why can't they just do like a dance off or something like real men? So Ren gets nervous and finds out that one kid supposedly died doing this. And Ariel trash talks him a bit. I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but I think even I could do well at this tractor chicken game that they're playing i mean all you have to do is get the tractors going and then just not bitch out at the last second ren is oversteering on his way to run into chuck and ren keeps almost jumping out but ultimately chuck bitches out and jumps and it's like my god i mean i don't understand why this had to be you know what i mean it's it's just you know like have a hopscotch tournament or something all of a sudden it seems like ariel is now into ren since he won and chuck lost sarah jessica parker is a great best friend type in this movie she's super chatty and jokey and she's legitimately funny at times some kid tries to force a joint on ren between classes and the teacher catches him but ren flushes it in front of the teacher and I guess this kid was basically just forcing this on him because it was like a a way of bullying him, you know, like forcing him to almost get in trouble or actually get in trouble. I don't really know what happens, but it's a very weird thing. I, I, I never understand. I mean, even if I wanted to get somebody in trouble, I don't remember people in high school, they wouldn't have wanted to sacrifice a joint to get somebody in trouble they'd want to do it some other way you know what i mean they're they're gonna want to smoke that joint and that joint costs money so anyway ren's uncle i'm actually not really sure that this guy how he's related to him or whatever but i'm gonna say he's his uncle and he's giving ren a bunch of shit about getting in trouble and the uncle makes some comment about not being ren's father and ren just storms off and we commence Ren going to an abandoned factory and just daydreaming about Ariel and then dancing his fucking ass off. 
I've rarely heard a more 80s soundtrack anywhere than this movie. I just cannot fucking believe how 80s it sounds. Ren is sliding down stair railings and boogieing to the music, and then he's doing that gymnastics thing where they swing on the bars. Ariel shows up and catches Ren in the act, and she asks him why he doesn't like her, and I'm just like, maybe that's because you've been a total cunt to him to this point, Ariel, you know? Did you even consider that at all? So Ren says her boyfriend will kick his ass over her, and she says Chuck doesn't own her. She asks Ren if he wants to kiss her, and he says someday. She gets offended when he says that he's afraid he'd pale in comparison to some of the guys she's probably kissed. Then she wants to know if he wants to see something, and he says yes, but you know he was at least expecting to get, like, flashed or something, you know? I mean, honestly... So instead, they go to see a bunch of fucking banned books somewhere, and I can't really imagine what a high school guy would want to see more than a pile of banned books. Ariel keeps fucking flirting with Ren, but he's still standoffish, and she stands on the train tracks with the train coming, and Ren pushes her out of the way just in time. This was just the physical contact that Ren needed to initiate to get the ball rolling on making out with Ariel, but he doesn't carpe that diem. When Ariel comes home, it's late, and her father is up waiting for her, and he grills her about what she was doing, and she says that she was just late and she wasn't doing anything wrong, which is not true. He tells her not to associate with Ren anymore, and she's very upset by that. Ren gets kicked off the team, I think it's the gymnastics team, I don't really know, it doesn't fucking matter. This all happened, at least in part, because of him bringing Ariel home late. So this is the the ramifications of his actions. So while washing his car with Willard, he pitches that they should have a dance, and he's met with much apprehension. Elsewhere, the Reverend is feeding all of these fucking people this line of bullshit about their small town and blah blah blah, and we're just seeing like the hive-mindedness of these folks and how they'll go along with whatever the Reverend says. The town is going to have a meeting to put the kibosh on the dance that Ren wants to have, and Ren takes Ariel, Willard, and Rusty to go dancing across state lines. We find out Willard can't dance, and I can't really remember what happens in this movie, but I'm already prepared to say that Sarah Jessica Parker can do better than Chris Penn. I mean, rest in peace, Chris Penn, of course, but you're still great, even if Sarah Jessica Parker is too good for you, buddy. So Rusty actually wants to dance with Willard, and I've got to say, strike while the iron's hot if you're in his shoes. You never know what this could lead to. So the title song to this movie, say what you will about Kenny Loggins, it's a very fucking catchy tune. I really enjoy it. Rusty starts dancing with a strange cowboy to the song, and Willard intervenes and talks a lot of shit, and he gets punched in the fucking face, which was only natural. So they're driving home, and they go to cross a bridge, and Willard says that this particular bridge gives him the creeps, and I'm like, okay, I mean, why this bridge? And apparently this bridge is where the accident that started the whole music and dance band happened. So about five years ago, these kids were drunk, and their cars went over the bridge, and they all died, and the Reverend went fucking nuts. Apparently, Ariel's older brother was one of the kids who died, which is why the Reverend seemingly has such a personal stake in this this ban on dance and music. And whenever I see Diane Weist, I just know that I'm not gonna like her or her character. I'm just not a big Diane Weist fan, honestly. 
Ariel is talking back to her dad at home when he's hassling her about where she was and he slaps her in the name of the Lord. But the Reverend is very troubled by his own behavior and his wife tries to comfort him and she points out that Ariel is much like her father. She points out that he's a good preacher for the masses, but he kind of sucks at the individual level basically. These guys find Ren and start hassling him about trying to get the dance going and some nice guy comes and breaks it up and later on in the locker room it's suggested that Ren speak in front of the city council to plead the case for the dance. Ren vows to teach Willard to dance and I haven't caught if they call Willard anything for short, but Willard is an awful name to go by. So anyway, we get a big montage of dance lessons, and naturally old Willie boy starts to improve. Some guy brings a book that was found in the school to the reverend's attention because he says it's inappropriate and should be burned. We start to see the beginnings of the reverend being reasonable. Chuck confronts Ariel because I guess she hadn't broken up with him yet, which it's like, come the fuck on. Even if he's a douche, you gotta break it off. That's just standard. He doesn't take it very well. She hits him and then he clocks her and knocks her down and and then she tries vandalizing his truck and it's a real fucking unpleasant situation. Ariel goes to Ren and he comforts her and she's all bruised up from the interaction with Chuck. She kind of lets on that she wants Ren to do what he's doing with the dance just to get back at her dad. Ren says he doesn't like that. He wants it to be more of a broad fuck you to a larger group of people, which I can respect. And I've never thought I'd be that guy, but Kevin Bacon needs a fucking haircut in this movie. It's in that weird betweeny phase where it's not really long, but it's not short either. Oh, and he finally kisses her, but she's all bruised up. So, I mean, why did you wait until then to kiss her? That's just fucking weird. So apparently we just never see the Reverend react to Ariel being beaten up by Chuck. And if not, why can't we get some of that? Because it would really do a lot for his character, I think. The kids are really pushing for support at the town council meeting and Ren is nervous about speaking at the council. I mean, fucking public speaking is the worst. I can't even fucking imagine. I've gotten way better about it, but it's it's not easy. So Ariel gets him a holy Bible with all of this stuff clearly outlined to use for the meeting and and then somebody, probably Chuck and his friends, throw a brick into Ren's house's window that says burn in hell on it. So Ren's mom has actually lost her job, we find out, because of Ren's behavior. And the uncle tells Ren, basically, this goes to show him what happens when he acts like a human being in this town. Ren has a heart-to-heart with his mom, and he says that he originally thought when his dad threatened to leave, it was because of him. So Ren tried to change things to make his dad stay, but his dad still obviously left. And then he felt like it made no difference what he did, so what the fuck was the point in trying to do anything? But now, this whole thing with the dance feels like he really could enact change and make a difference in his eyes. At the town council meeting, Ren moves that the laws be abolished, and the reverend obviously objects based on all of the perceptions that he has regarding the destructive nature of certain types of music. The reverend's wife defends Ren's right to be heard openly in front of the whole town, and Ren officially gets up to the microphone, and he is basically making out with this fucking mic. Like, If you can feel metal on your lips when you talk into a microphone, you are way too close, man. Ren reads the stories and passages from the Bible, and you get this glimmer of hope showing through in the Reverend's eyes, since Ren is kind of speaking his language. Ren pleads with him that this is their time to dance, and he just steps away. So Ren's boss tries to help him figure out a way he could still have the dance, because I guess Ren didn't really make enough waves at the town hall to really 
make that change. So Ariel goes to see the Reverend practicing his preaching, and they have a little heart-to-heart about what it is he does and what he justifies believing. The discussion gets pretty heated, and Ariel reveals that she's not a virgin, but they're interrupted by someone who tells the Reverend about a book burning going on, and the Reverend goes and pleads with the people that they aren't accomplishing jack shit by doing what they're doing. So he sends everyone home, and he seems wicked conflicted, and we join midway through Ren sitting down with the Reverend, briefly trying to find some common ground with him, but he doesn't really make a ton of progress. I would have really liked to have gotten a lot more of this fucking conversation. I feel like we got shortchanged just catching the tail end of it. This should have been like a flagship moment in this fucking movie where it's like, this is a big deal that this is happening, but it was played off like it was just a minor scene. So it turns out that Ren was actually initially asking if he could take Ariel to prom, and John Lithgow really is fucking nailing this movie at this point. I mean, he's doing pretty fucking well. There's a lot of internal conflict to be conveyed, but not openly spoken about. So the Reverend delivers this sermon talking about feeling like a young parent who doesn't always know the right thing to do to help the people that follow him. And he says that they have to start trusting their children more. He knows that they're trying to organize the dance elsewhere. And he essentially says that he just wishes them all the best. So then we get I'm Free by Kenny Loggins as they're gearing up for the dance. And the place where they're having this dance is basically just where Ren works. And it's small, but it'll do for this one horse town. I really am not a fucking fan of Diane Weiss, despite her character seemingly being the good cop to John Lithgow's bad cop. Something about her, I just, I can't fucking get there. Ren tells Ariel that she's beautiful when he comes to pick her up, and he's very gentlemanly to her and whatnot, of course. And at the dance, it's a fucking snooze fest. No one is dancing, and they're all standing at the wall or sitting, and they definitely cheaped out on the DJ, in my opinion, anyway. Then Ren and Ariel start slow dancing, so others join in, and the Reverend and the Misses come by to see the excitement, and we still have the loose end to tie up of Chuck and company throwing bricks into Ren's house. So outside of the dance, Willard and Rusty are converged on by the bad guys, and they pick a fight with Willard, even though he promised Rusty he wouldn't fight, and it's like 5-1 to one against Willard, and they really start fucking him up pretty bad. And Ren comes outside and sees the fight in progress and starts fighting Chuck. And it seems like a pretty lopsided fight, but Ren and Willard still end up triumphant, and that's pretty solid. It's a pretty anticlimactic brawl, though, to be honest. Ren goes back inside and really gets the party rolling, and I want to be a good dancer, but every time I fucking try, I look like those characters from Peanuts, just dancing, like dipping my head down, and... It just looks ridiculous. So anyway, we basically get a bunch of people dancing to close out the movie, and everyone seems happy, but they know the unflinching nature of life's other obstacles are still ahead of them. The end. Okay, so praise. The ridiculous plot. I mean, it's ridiculous, but apparently it could happen. The arguments against the law are great. I love that he uses the Bible as his argument for his stance. And then, of course, the message of the overall importance of sticking it to the man. For criticism, I would say that I just wish that that scene where the Reverend finds out what Chuck did to Ariel had happened. I feel like that was a real missed opportunity. And same thing with the conversation with Ren when Ren goes to ask if Ariel 
can go to prom with him. It's like I wanted more of that, and they didn't expand on it, and it's it's too bad. So for trivia, we have this is loosely based on the events that took place in the small, rural, and extremely religious farming town of Elmore City, Oklahoma in 1978. Dancing had been banned for nearly 90 years until a group of high school teenagers challenged it. The scenes where Chris Penn's character had to learn how to dance were actually added to the script because Penn could not really dance. The dancing feat in the opening credit sequence contained many of the cast and crew. Over 150 pairs of feet were shot. The dancer with the gold shoes on was Kenny Loggins. Kevin Bacon was offered the leading role for the Stephen King movie Christine from 1983 at the same time that he was asked to do a screen test for Footloose from 1984. The producers had to convince Bacon that turning down a sure role in Christine for a part that he might not even get in Footloose was the wiser choice. The producers told him that if he got the part for Footloose, the role would make him a star. 30 seconds into the screen test, Bacon had been offered the part. It is said that Kevin Bacon often actually tips DJs to not play the title song to this movie, so he isn't expected to dance to it if he attends events. That's pretty amazing. All right, so info and ratings. We have a runtime of 107 minutes, budget $8.2 million, opening weekend $8.6 million, worldwide gross $80 million, IMDb rating 6.6, Rotten Tomato critic score 52%, Rotten Tomato audience score, 71%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. I do adore this one. It's fantastic. It's a very good movie. It's just, it's very simplistic, but it's very to the point and great. I just, I really like it. All right, everyone. Well, I appreciate you uh, listening to the episode. And of course, you know, as always, suggestions, requests, blah, blah, blah. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.